Ross, don't you see this is our last chance? The bastards are at the city gates. Let's stand at the bridge together. Let's stand at the bridge and push the barbarians back. Right. Just give me a minute. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. I'm Zoe Chase. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, and that was a clip from the made-for-TV movie Barbarians at the Gate. It's the classic movie about private equity. And in that scene, the head of RJR Nabisco is sweating in his office. A private equity firm is coming to buy his company. Another buyout firm is urging him to resist. Today is our second podcast on private equity firms. Are they good, evil, somewhere in between? We've been focusing on examples from Mitt Romney's firm, Bain Capital, since that's in the news. Last time, we walked you through an investment in a company that made those yellow legal pads. That deal went bust. Today, we look at an investment that went well. And we step back and say, okay, private equity, what are we supposed to make of it? First, the indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator, six. It has been almost six years since home prices started falling and... They are still falling. That's not news if it's still falling. <laughs> six years, man. You're not <laughs> right. going to give me six right, years? It's a okay. great indicator. This, uh, the the Case-Shiller Index came out today, and as of December, it said, home prices hit a new post-bubble low. So we've talked about before on the podcast how the housing market is different from, say, the stock market, right, where people can buy and sell instantly. I want to sell a stock. Whoa, it just happened. You know, I want to sell a house. You know that that can take a longer time, right? And you add to that the fact that we've had this huge bubble followed by a huge wave of foreclosures and millions of people underwater on their mortgages. So it makes sense that something like this is just going to take a really long time. But, I mean, six years is a really long time. When's it going to end? <laughs> well, I don't know is the short answer. But there are ways to think this through that are useful. You know, I mean, first you can say, well, there are still millions of people underwater on their mortgages. There are millions more foreclosures that are likely to happen in the next couple of years. So it's not like all of a sudden next month, everything's going to be great all of a sudden. But that said, there are signs that the housing market is slowly sort of grinding back to normal. Uh, in particular, that glut of homes on the market that I kept talking about, it was like a go-to indicator for me last year. That glut has basically disappeared. We're back to a kind of normal relation between supply and demand in the housing market. So that is a sign that it's kind of normalizing. Uh, it's also the case that, yeah, prices are falling. They were down about 4% last year, but they're not like falling through the floor like they were at the beginning of the bus. They're just kind of bumping along the bottom, maybe getting a little lower. And then finally, you know, if you look really big picture, the whole economy is clearly starting to get better. Maybe most importantly, the number of new jobs the economy is adding is growing every month. So all these things together suggest, you know, the housing bust is not going to go on forever and, and the market is starting to get back to normal. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, guys. On to the podcast. And more good times with Bain Capital, Mitt Romney's private equity firm. On our last podcast, if you didn't hear it, it featured an investment that ended like this. When you look back at, at your legacy there, at the company that you helped to build, mm -hmm. what is the value added? Since the company did end up going bankrupt and breaking off into pieces... Is there a lasting value to what happened? Uh, no, I, my opinion, no, there's no lasting value. It was, 
no, no lasting value. The story was that Bain Capital came in and bought this company called Ampad that made legal pads, those yellow pads of paper. They wanted to build a paper empire, so they took out a whole bunch of loans. They bought a bunch of other companies, file folder companies, envelope company, printer paper company. But eight years after the investment, the new company, American Patent Paper, was broken into pieces in bankruptcy court. The investment that we're going to look at today, it sounds very different. One of those times in your business career when things were going great, times kept getting better and better. This is Tom Steiner. He was an executive at one of the companies that was bought by Mitt Romney's firm, Bain Capital, in the 1990s. And he's actually nostalgic for the days that Bain was running the company. It was fun because people trusted each other, being rewarded very nicely for their effort. This time, Bain was not buying a legal pad company in the hopes of making a paper empire. This time, the business was a contact lens company called Wesley Jessen. And in the mid-90s at the time, it was not doing very well. well I was in the finance area of Wesley Jessen, and um, we were not a, a very profitable company at all. This is Bill Flynn. He worked at the contact lens company, Wesley Jessen, at the time. And what happened was Bain saw this company, and they thought the business could be doing a lot better. This is what private equity is supposed to do. They find companies like this, companies that are foundering, and they fix them up. So they start with money from outside investors, pension funds, endowments, and then borrow a lot of money from the bank. They then take that money and buy companies. They basically renovate the companies. They try to make them better. And once they've done that, they sell them off. They pay off the debt. They pay back their investors. And sometimes they pay back their investors a lot. Wesley Jessen didn't just make contact lenses. They made colored contact lenses. And the business was kind of getting lost. Wesley Jessen was part of a bigger company sharing plow, and the colored contact lens business just wasn't competing very well. Disposable contact lenses were popular, but they weren't making disposables. They were making the old extended wear kind. So Bain Capital thought there was room for improvement. And color contacts, like I've never worn them, but I've always thought they're totally awesome. I love them. Like if you have a green dress, then you just get green eyes to go with it. It's nice. Zoe, you were not alone. They weren't very profitable, but some people were buying them. Some people you might have heard of. Michael Jackson wore Wesley Jessen contacts in the Thriller video. Remember, you can see those yellow eyes. Bain thought these color contacts, done right, they could be big. Wesley Jessen had a patent, and their patent on color contacts was so broad, one of the executives told me, that they controlled 80% of the world market on color contacts. So Bain Capital decides this is going to be its next big private equity deal. It's going to buy the colored contact lens business and make it profitable. Here's Bill Flynn again. Bain came in and gave us a clean slate. Bain's investment was similar to the last deal we looked at. To buy the company, you needed almost $50 million. And this is the way private equity works. You don't have to put all that money up. Bain puts in about $6.5 million and borrows the rest. This, you may remember, is what Bain did with Ampad. It's the classic private equity move. And now they're in that classic private equity position. They have to turn a company around, a company that now has a whole bunch of debt. The very first and probably most important thing Bain did is they hired this one guy. The primary 
contribution that they made and was bringing in a new CEO by the name of Kevin Ryan. He worked harder than almost everybody in the company. He was an ethical, honest guy. It was an attitude. Through his intelligence and charisma. He could get people to do things they had not normally done. Unanimous. That was Tom Steiner, Bill Flynn, Joe Collins. All right, all right, I get it. People love him. I'm jealous. I want to be him. What (laughs) what did he do? The first thing he does is kind of dramatic. He stops all manufacturing. A very expensive decision. No one was let go, but everyone was furloughed. Ron Artali was the controller then, and he says that Kevin Ryan wanted to build good relationships with the biggest customer. Of course, that's eye doctors. And at the time, eye doctors were saying, you guys have inundated our offices with color contacts. Enough with the contacts. We have closets full of them. And Kevin Ryan, as soon as he got there, he said to the doctors, no problem. Send them back. We'll take them. No questions asked. Now, what that did, of course, was make for an inventory nightmare. But it made for a lot of credibility with the doctors. Under new management, the company begins to question even the most basic practices, like that their contact lenses were sent out in packs of three, not three pairs, three contact lenses. What? I asked Tom Steiner about it. Wait, why would you have three packs when people have two eyes? (laughs) That question was, of course, discussed a lot. So new policy, even number, they send out packs of six and they cut the price they were selling the lenses for. And that worked out well. They had a smaller profit margin, but they were making up for it with increased sales. They also shift into selling disposable color contacts, which are more popular than the extended wear kind they'd been focusing on. And they launch some new high profit items. May have seen the, the phrase wild eyes. Wild eyes. Lenses with thunderbolts, concentric circles, yellow lenses. Today there's ones with like leopard spots and zebra stripes. Uh, you know, fun lenses that uh, could be sold at Halloween. So sales are growing and Bain Capital, remember, they're running this company. They do not stop there. Their plan is to sew up the color contact lens market. So they want to sell their color contacts overseas. And the way private equity works, classic private equity move again, they go back to the bank and borrow a bunch more money. This is like in the last podcast where they borrowed money after buying the legal pad company to buy the envelope company and the hanging folder company. They borrow about $70 million or so, and they buy another lens company, Pilkington Barnes-Hines. Pilkington Barnes-Hines made disposable lenses all around the world, places where color contacts were very popular, and also they could make contacts that would filter out UV rays, like little bitty sunglasses. Finally now, we are at the moment of truth. Bain has brought in a new boss, it's built up and it's fixed up the company, and they're going to put their new, improved, global, wild-eye, crazy, (laughs) UV-protecting contact lens company up for sale. In 1997, they have an IPO, an initial public offering, where they sell shares of this new company to the public, and it is a huge success. Executives and managers who hadn't received a raise since Kevin Ryan showed up, they cashed in their stock options that they'd received instead, and they made quite a bit of money. And the people who worked in the factories actually making the contact lenses, they kept their jobs at a growing company. The banks that lent all that money to help this happen, they start to get paid back with interest. The private equity guys who work at Bain Capital, they eventually cash out and they get rich also. Well, they're probably already rich, but they get richer. And the company in general is bigger and more successful. And we have awesome contact lenses. The end. 
This is the story that if you are a supporter of private equity, you love. The company is struggling. You turn it around. The company is way more valuable. So what do we make of all of this? In this podcast and the other one, we've told you two stories now, right? One about American pad and paper, an attempt to turn a legal pad company into a giant paper empire. That failed. People lost their jobs. The company went bankrupt. This other story about a neglected little contact lens company that goes on to greatness. So you got one success, one failure. Here are some raw numbers to help you think about that. The Wall Street Journal looked into all the businesses that Mitt Romney's firm Bain Capital, we've been studying those cases, invested in in the 1980s and 90s. There were 77 of those deals. 22% of them, according to the Wall Street Journal, ended up in bankruptcy. An additional 8% ran into trouble. On the other hand, some of the deals went really well. So how do we weigh this? We called up two people who have spent a lot of time studying the private equity world. The first is Victor Fleischer. He's a professor of tax law at the University of Colorado. And David, you just asked him straight out. Can I just cut to the chase? Um, Is private equity good or bad? (laughs) There's no hedging here. I have to say yes or no. (laughs) Yes or no. Uh, I think private equity is bad. Our second expert is Stephen Kaplan, a professor of finance at the Chicago Booth School of Business. Is private equity good or bad? Overall, private equity is good for the economy. Okay, so you have two experts, two different answers, unfortunately. This is what it's like when you look into private equity. The findings are complicated. We're going to have these guys talk us through three specific criticisms of the industry that come up a lot. Criticism number one, the game is rigged in favor of private equity. This argument goes along these lines. If things go well, the private equity guys get super rich. And if things go badly, they can walk away. And we, the taxpayers, are left to pay. Here's Victor Fleischer, the private equity is bad guy. The companies start doing everything they can to uh, to make the interest payments, including things like firing workers, including things like uh, trying to pull money out of the retirement funds that, that uh, had been set aside for, for workers, renegotiating uh, pension obligations going forward. Uh, and uh, that creates social costs that, that's not borne by uh, the company or the, the bank or the investors, but, but is carried by all of us. Uh, and I think what, what the private equity folks would say in response is, well, some of those firms were going to fail anyway. Uh, and so we shouldn't be saddled with the responsibility for, for closing down that, that factory. And, and, and that's a really hard question to know. So is this even an answerable question? I'm, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think it's really hard to measure all of these things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think the best we can say is that, that it's ambiguous whether it's, it's good or bad. Stephen Kaplan, the private equity is good guy, he disagrees. He says, sure, not all private equity deals go well, but he says they don't go bankrupt any more often than companies that aren't run by private equity firms. I will say the difficult thing here is that when you say don't go bankrupt more often than other companies that aren't run by private equity firms, that's sort of hard to measure. I mean, what companies do you compare to? Do you compare to ones that are also carrying a lot of debt? Well, maybe they're carrying a lot of debt because they're already in trouble. So it's sort of hard to know. Stephen Kaplan says what is clear to him is that the private equity deals that turn out well, those new companies, they perform better than average. Overall, private equity is good for the economy. Prove it. Prove it. Okay. When you look at a large sample of firms, the companies that private equity investors invest in get more productive. Their operating margins go up, meaning their profits go up, and they tend to be more 
capital efficient. All right. On to contentious issue number two. This is the one thing that really drives some people crazy when they hear about private equity, which is that even when a deal goes bad and a company fails, the private equity firm still sometimes gets paid. It works like this. A private equity firm will go to the bank to borrow money using the companies as collateral, and they'll use that money that they borrowed to pay themselves and their investors. And that can make it seem like they never lose. Like even in the Ampad case from the previous podcast, that ended up in bankruptcy. But the private equity guys and their investors, they still got paid. Bain and the investors had put in $5 million. Then they borrowed $70 million to pay themselves back. They got paid. Then the paper company went bankrupt. And this just seems crazy to some people. I mean, you've loaded this company up with debt. You haven't even turned a profit yet. And you're going to the bank and saying, I'd like to add to that debt by taking out a $70 million loan so I can pay myself handsomely. We asked Stephen Kaplan about this. Why would a bank ever make that loan? He told us they don't like to. Banks don't really like to do that because they don't want to see the private equity firm taking money out. So they only make those loans when the companies are doing well and when the banks expect to get repaid. Now, sometimes they make a mistake. And in the case of uh, Ampad, the banks did because the company, uh, the company's business deteriorated after that and the company went into Chapter 11. But the kind of the key point there is that somebody's got to give you the money to pay that dividend, and they only give you that money if they think they're going to get paid back. These private equity guys, he says, they're not paying themselves out of nowhere. Someone has to believe in them and give them that loan. If the banks believe the company's going to be successful, they might make the loan. Kaplan agrees it looks ugly to the outside world, taking out a loan to pay yourself back. And we dug up some data about how often it happens. According to research by Standard & Poor's, in 2011, private equity firms took out a total of $25.5 billion of these loans to pay themselves and their investors. That's out of a total of 180 billion loans to do all the buying of companies that year. So that's a pretty significant chunk. Okay. Contentious issue number three, taxes. This is the issue that got Mitt Romney in trouble when his tax returns came out, and the world learned that he only paid about 15% in taxes. If you work at a private equity firm, you are paid a percentage of the profits. But that money is not taxed the way a salary would be taxed. It's taxed at a much lower rate, about 15% versus the 30 or 35% if it were treated as your salary. The tax code treats this money as capital gains, like you'd made an investment in a stock or a bond that had turned out well. The Obama administration has proposed changing the tax law for private equity firms and hedge funds. Victor Fleischer, the private equity is bad guy, he agrees that's a good idea. Stephen Kaplan, our private equity is good guy, says he might change it, but he would make it part of some broader tax reform. However you feel about what private equity does for the economy, there is one thing that is pretty clear. It makes a small group of people very, very wealthy, the people who work at the successful private equity firms. In fact, just yesterday, word came out about the man who started this whole thing with his enormous fund, KKR. His name is Henry Kravis, and he's actually the subject of the movie you heard at the top, Barbarians at the Gate. Henry Kravis is still around. So is KKR, still doing deals. And last year, Henry Kravis made $94 million dollars. He's been making big money for decades, some of it taxed at a very low rate. 
and it's still making headlines. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul, because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet, and you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. As always, we want to hear what you think. Send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify. I'm Zoe Chase. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul.